The Brazilian Grand Prix delivered all the goods as George Russell secured his first ever Grand Prix victory ahead of Lewis Hamilton on Sunday. But Red Bull stole the headlines. Can Max Verstappen and Checo Perez recover after a very public team dispute? And will Abu Dhabi be Mattia Bonotto's last race as Ferrari's team principal? All this and more on Unlapped. He might just be a fairly average driver with a very famous surname, which he wouldn't be the first one. Like Lewis v. Max, I think is still the most box office uh, rivalry that F1 can deliver. But when you're talking about sixth position, for Verstappen to behave the way he did, I think it was unbelievable. Sell Abu Dhabi to me. Why should I care? Why am I watching? Welcome to Unlapped, an ESPN F1 show. I'm Katie George, he's Lawrence Edmondson, and that's Nate Saunders. Lawrence is back on the road covering the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. How's the Middle East treating you? You're not quite there yet, but you are in Dubai. Is that right? Yeah, I'm staying in Dubai. I'm actually staying here for the whole week. Um, So Abu Dhabi and Dubai are both in the UAE, but they're quite separate, about 45 minutes on a motorway separate or highway, I should say, um, for American listeners. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's that every day for me because... um, F1's popularity, we've noticed that in a lot of places we've gone to, uh, means that hotel prices are just through the roof. And Abu Dhabi is no exception. I think a lot of people saw last year's Abu Dhabi and they thought, wow, we're going to get another um, epic finale to talk about for centuries of, uh, you know, Formula One uh, listeners. But yeah, no, sadly, it's uh, it's not the case. We have the title wrapped up, but all the hotels in Abu Dhabi are, are booked up. So I'm out in Dubai. Which I imagine is still very pricey, by the way. But Nate, you're at home. I'm curious. Do you get jealous not being on the road or do you actually like some downtime at home? I do like the downtime until I'm in a few group chats with people until everyone gets there and then you suddenly get FOMO. You know, you're like, oh, I should be out there. And Abu Dhabi is always good fun. You know, it's got that kind of end of school vibe to it. And just as a as a side note for people listening, Lawrence and I have covered F1 for a long time. It's the scene of one of Lawrence's best pranks against me. My first time I went to Abu Dhabi in 2016. We kept we kept driving in. And Lawrence kept saying to me, yeah, it's really hot out here in the desert. I was like, I know, like this car is boiling. Didn't realize Lawrence had kept turning my um, my car seat to full. So I would get to the circuit and I'd be like, I'm so warm. And I only realized, I think, on the drive back after like the Saturday. And this is like five days in. So yeah, I, for some reason that, that just popped into my head when we were talking about it. But um, I've only been there three times. I've seen two title deciders uh, and one dead rubber. And I can say that the the two title deciders obviously were infinitely better the you know the one that didn't have anything riding on it i feel like abu dhabi as a venue does need that kind of hanging over it but um i don't think that would detract from this weekend there's enough going on that um yeah there's various storylines and weirdly last time i went to one that didn't have a championship we spent half the weekend saying goodbye to fernando alonso and then he he turned up again two <laughs> two years later so i think vessels will be more final this year but yeah that's what one of my memories of that place was that just your way lawrence of welcoming him to the grid um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you, you've got to make fun, haven't you, on these, on these long yeah. car journeys. Into the it's obviously stuck though. with me, so. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's the kind of thing which you do every now and again. You think, ah, oh, they'll notice, they'll notice. But Nate was just there cooking away, like, kind of sweating yeah. a bit. Turning it. the aircon up, like, it's really, it's this bad, isn't it? This is really bad. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who, who has heated seats in the desert? I mean, it's it seems it's a bit yeah. necessary. And an I think I was... I was I haven't owned a car for a while, so I was kind of naive that that you know cars just all had those in now, I think. So I didn't even think to check. So it was definitely a learning experience that race. Now you always check when riding oh, car side. Yeah, hundred percent. If I'm in the car with Lawrence, I just I'm like constantly <laughs> pushing that button. Like I don't want the seat, I don't want the heat on. 
All right. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave a comment on what you want to see more of. And don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get to what everyone came for, shall we? We'll start our news segment uh, with some rumors that hit Twitter and social media over the last couple of days. Some were saying that Mattia Bonotto was out as Ferrari team principal. Scuderia Ferrari actually came out and made a statement that those claims were false, although they didn't necessarily give a rousing statement that he was going to be team principal in the future. So I'm just curious, Lawrence, what did you make of the rumors that we saw and then Scuderia Ferrari's statement that they put out following it? Yeah, so Mattia's job has been questioned for pretty much the whole season uh really we saw earlier this year how ferrari had a car that looked like it was capable of winning a championship yet here we are in abu dhabi and there's you know they haven't been in the battle uh since really mid-season so you can understand where these rumors came from uh ferrari have always been quite protective of Mattia over this period uh but these stories which came from legitimate good Italian publications and that's usually where the news comes from around Ferrari first it's usually from the likes of Gazzetta della Sport who who had uh, published a story around it and so we thought you know this looks like it and and the rumor was that Fred Vasseur who's the uh, team boss at Alfa Romeo was going to come in to replace him and that also made a certain degree of sense because uh, Fred's unlikely although it's not certain to be kept around when Audi come in in 2026 because they're likely mm -hmm. to bring in their own people and want to do things their own way. Uh, so it would make sense for, you know, very talented, very uh, knowledgeable, very good team principal to, to make a step uh, from a midfield team up to a big team like Ferrari. So it kind of, things were falling into place. And then this Ferrari statement came out and it didn't come out immediately. The story kind of cooked away for a day or two. And then they came out and they said, in relation to speculation in certain media regarding Scuderia, Ferrari team principal Mattia Bonotto's position, Ferrari states that these rumours are totally without foundation. So, um, you know, I mean, that, that, that that's fairly strong. It's, it's, it's saying that the stories out there, they are saying are not true. But um, a lot of the speculation was around a January uh, swap in terms of when Fred would would take over. So we've seen this kind of thing before where we've had denials from teams and then eventually something happens. So uh, I don't think we can rule it out. And again, just because of the way Ferrari season's gone, there would be a certain logic in making changes at the top. Um, but I think, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And Matia hasn't actually been around. I wasn't in Brazil, but he wasn't in Austin because mm -hmm. he was unwell. And then he didn't make the trip to Mexico. Again, I, I presume because he was on, well, I'm actually trying to chase an interview with him at the moment. So I'll be <laughs> down at Ferrari uh, tomorrow trying to, uh, to to understand what's going on. Um, and uh, yeah, so we haven't seen him for a few races either, which obviously always feeds speculation like that. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see. But it, yeah, the, the stories when they first came out were believable, certainly. I think the Vasseur part of it is quite interesting as well, if that's where Ferrari did go. I think it's been quite clear that Leclerc has been pretty upset, <laughs> to say the least, with how things have gone recently. And obviously, Fred's pretty well regarded in the paddock and um, was was Charles Leclerc's uh, team boss in his rookie mm -hmm. season. So to me, that appointment would make a lot of sense from Fred's side, but I think from from the Charles side as well. You know, if if you're trying to bring back your superstar driver kind of from the brink, there were some rumors of you know him talking to Toto and stuff like that, which you know seemed didn't seem to have much 
basis to them, but I feel like got out there for that exact reason is to kind of remind Ferrari, like, hey, like, I can go talk to other teams if I need to. And it's interesting because I think I, I get the impression from some conversations, you know, with, with you know, other team bosses in the paddock that there's been a feeling that John Elkin, who's Ferrari president, has been trying to get rid of Bonotto for a while. And maybe the the issue Ferrari have had is not so much the um, getting rid of Bonotto, but it's who who actually replaces him. You know, who, who do you actually bring in? You know, Ferrari, obviously with Bonotto, his his whole thing was he was he was promoted from within. And I think the feeling seems to be that as much as Ferrari want to do that and they want to they want this kind of homegrown success story, right. I think they've realized that actually that's pretty unlikely. And I think one thing that's actually pretty interesting when you look at Ferrari is the big, the dominant spell of their history, you know, of, of the modern era was when obviously Schumacher was dominating, but you had this great international team of of people there. You had Schumacher, who was German, you had Jean Tot, who was French, and you had Ross Braun, who was English, and you had Italian guys there working with it. But the kind of, the big guys, the big guns within it were all, you know, not Italian. And I feel like since then there has been a shift in Ferrari to be like, we want you know, an Italian to lead the way into the future. And I'm not saying Italian people can't do that, but I don't know who else would replace Bonotto as a like-for-like replacement um, who is Italian. And I think that's been the issue. So Vassar would be, I think Vassar would be sensible. I'm not sure whether he'd be a long-term solution or like, you know, a stopgap between Bonotto and somebody else. But um, it definitely makes sense. And I I think this season, you can't really keep him around. You know, you've got to make a change. And I'm I'm still surprised that Bonotto kept his job after 2019 because that's the season Ferrari had that illegal engine. Mm-hmm. You know, horrible like from, from a PR perspective for Ferrari was pretty dreadful. And it, you know, it meant that for 20, 2020 and 21 they, you know, they took a huge back step. So he's probably on borrowed time already. Um so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if if this is his last race, but it's funny, isn't it? Cause in a lot of sports that, that vote of no confidence is often, is often a sign that you're, you're about to go. So the fact they didn't give him that, I, I wasn't sure what to make of it, but um, yeah, the, the, like Lawrence said, the journalists that actually broke that news, I think are pretty well connected with him Ferrari. So I think there's definitely some, some rumblings behind the scene, um, behind the scenes. Sorry. So it'd be interesting, but yeah, Vasseur, Vasseur's an interesting, interesting pick. I don't know who else. I, I think I saw Andreas Seider was mentioned as well as a potential, mm-hmm. um, you know, pick and he, you know, he's done a great job with McLaren. So yeah, if they did go for sir, I think it would be surprising given who else could be there. I saw people saying maybe Gunther Steiner could go there, but I don't think Ferrari in a million years would hire someone, someone as erratic as Gunther, as much as we all love him. He doesn't fit that mold at all. But I think Fred does fit into that kind of, you know, what Ferrari look for from people that work there. We talk about culture fits and mm. all kinds of different sports. I don't know if that is uh, the best culture fit when it comes yeah. down to it. So obviously we'll wait and see what happens there. We've been waiting for the last domino to fall in terms of drivers and which seats that they will fill. I got to believe that Nico Hulkenberg and Haas are closing in on their deal and possibly getting ready to make an announcement. What do we know there? Yeah. So as I think when a lot of people listen to this, the news will have been confirmed. So Thursday morning, we expect that to be done um, from Haas. And obviously, you know, that, that's that been news that I think people have been expecting for a while now. Schumacher out, Hulkenberg in. Schumacher's future is really interesting because, you know, where he goes next, ho- hopefully he stays kind of in the orbit of F1. Maybe he goes to Mercedes in a reserve role or something. But um, yeah, Hulkenberg coming back. I mean, Hulkenberg's career is pretty remarkable when you look at it. You know, he's he's been in, he's been out. He kind of, in 2020, he was that kind of fairy tale kind of super sub story, which, you know, was actually kind of great to cover in the middle of that pandemic. And then, you know, he I, I always forget he did two races this year. You know, he did those mm-hmm. two races for Aston Martin, but it was just kind of a really underwhelming performance because of where that car was at the time. So he's he's probably made a smart call in the long run to stay in F1 because I think a lot of 
drivers when they leave Formula One, you know, they they lose that kind of that long term seat. They go, okay, I'll go race somewhere else. And I think as soon as you do that, you kind of close a lot of the doors, the opportunities that are open to you. And he's kind of kept himself there. He's kept himself testing cars. He's kept himself in the window. Um, I think he's had over 180 race starts. Of course, the famous stat with him is he's not been on the podium. But in terms of experience, I think he's going to be, he's probably the best option that was out there you know, for Haas. If you look at you know the people they were talking to. I mean, I don't think Danny Rick was ever a, a, a serious candidate there. So if you take him out of the mix... All the drivers Haas could have had, I think he was clearly the best option in terms of experience and kind of pedigree. Um, it's a shame, though. I, I know Lawrence and I have talked about Schumacher before, and it, it is a shame because you always want to see a young guy given that chance. But I just think with Schumacher's crashes this year, I just don't think Haas could make any other call, especially in the cost cap area. You know, you can't, you can't have as many big yeah. crashes as Mick had, and and then you know, had those. I think it's two two races he finished in the points. So mid season, it seemed like maybe he's going to revive things. But it's a classic lesson to any rookie in Formula One or any young driver that you've got to be good when the car is good because Mick's performances have improved as the car has got a bit worse. Um, that's not to say the car hasn't been there. Obviously, it got it took pole position on Sunday. Oh, sorry, on Friday last week. But um, I think Mick has improved and the car's gone down, and that's worked against him because he's not been able to score those points that Kevin did at the start of the season, and ultimately that's kind of hurting them in the long run. It was such an awesome start for Haas in Brazil yeah. on that Friday. I mean, what a moment. What a great drive by Kevin Magnussen. Lawrence, what do you make of the team's decision to try to go for a more veteran, kind of steady, consistent performer as compared to sticking with a young, somewhat proven talent? Yeah, well, they turned full circle because, you know, they were meant to have at the start of this year, Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin, both in the second year in Formula One, having had them as rookies together uh, last year. And I think they've learned their lesson. I think they realised that, you know, if you are right at the back of the grid, like they were last year, then perhaps it's not going to make a difference. Your driver, you know, just cannot overcome the performance deficit of the car. But as soon as you're in that midfield, there's points to be scored with drivers who are on it. And, you know, Kevin is a great example of that. To get that pole position lap, in Interlagos, um, when you had all the other cars out on track, only one of them was on intermediates, that was Charles Leclerc. The rest of them were all on the soft tyres that Kevin had on, yet Kevin in that car was able to beat them all. And that was a real kind of standout performance, not just for Kevin, but also for Mick, who had gone out in Q1. And I think this is one of the reasons that uh, has to look at it. Okay, there's been the accidents, there's been the crash damage. You know, that is hard to uh, justify when you're a driver in a team without a huge budget. But also, Mick has always just struggled to get in the car and just perform really fast at the start of every weekend. Usually he will get there. And sometimes you see these really good stints in races, but it's just not consistent enough and it's not right from the start. And so when you have golden opportunities like Interlagos to put a, a Haas on the front row of the grid, you know, Kevin was able to do it. And Mick, in the meantime, was starting last. And I think that, that's a big thing. And so also, you know, with Kevin coming back in uh, at the start of the year and I get in uh, fifth in Bahrain, for example, they just realized, wow, you know, when you put somebody who really is on it in this car, mm -hmm. they can do some impressive stuff. And, you know, let's be honest, Kevin isn't really on the standard of Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, but he's, he's up there. And, and Nico, I think they, they see as a, as a similar talent. And what's more, when you've got two of them in the same team, they really have to start to push each other. It's not a case that Kevin can just relax a bit because he knows in the other garage, Mick's going to be struggling for, you know, most of the weekend before he finally right. gets up to speed. So right from the start of every weekend, you're going to have both of them going for it. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see which one comes out because 
like Nate said, you know, Nico Hulkenberg has this horrible record of never scoring a podium in all those races that he's done. But both Kevin and Nico, I think, are both examples of careers which never really reached fruition. They never really got to the high point that they deserve. So both of them in a car together, in a team together, um, could be really good fun next year. Could give <clears throat> could give Steiner a headache or two in terms of obviously the big the big narrative a few years ago was his teammates crashing together. I think yeah. Haas, it's always interesting, isn't it? I think they've 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 bounced between two different very different extremes where they had two competitive teammates who seemed to just like their car seemed to be magnetically attracted to each other, and then they went from that in twenty 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 to twenty one where you had two cars who. Like, you know, I mean, Mazepin was spinning every week. Schumacher was making mistakes every week. And the last thing on their minds was, are these two guys going to collide? Because they're like, well, they're never together on the racetrack anyway. So I think it 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 always brings new issues and stuff like that. But I think the management of things is going to be interesting. But I think Steiner gets on pretty well with Hulkenberg. They go back quite a long way. So I think that's going to help. But just on, on the dynamics of things behind the scenes, I think Kevin coming in on track's been big. But also, I think Kevin Magnussen is kind of as no-nonsense as you as you can imagine, like he doesn't really cause an issue behind the scenes. He's, you know, he says what he thinks. He's almost exactly the same as Steiner like that. So I think they get on pretty well. I think one of the issues that has grown with Mick, and I think it's become less of an issue this season, but there's a lot with Mick, you know, he's, he's obviously very protected by the Schumacher family, which makes sense given everything that's happened with Michael over the, you know, over the last decade. Um, But I think that probably the way Mick has been managed over this two-year period hasn't been ideal. And I think that that, when you can put up with that, if if the driver that you're dealing with is scoring points and doing well, but when the driver's underperforming, you think this is an, an extra thing that we just don't need to deal with. It was the same with Mazepin. You know, they looked at it and said, all of this, all this hassle that we have completely, you know, for a driver that, you know, isn't doing very well for us. So I think there's been a combination of things together. Um, and I think that Mick, if he wants to succeed in Formula One, he probably needs to take a different approach you know, the next team he goes to, you know, maybe, you know, just the people, you know, that are around him. I'm not saying he has to completely change everything, but I think that it's probably been quite a, a learning experience for him as well. So hopefully we'll see him back again, but it's hard to see where where Mick goes. And I think that the kind of the gloss of his surname was always one of the attractive things there. But I think mm-hmm. now people look at it and they say, well, okay, he might just be a fairly average driver with a very famous surname, which he wouldn't be the first one. <laughs> he wouldn't be the first racing driver to be like that. Um but, you know, it's always help and a hindrance. But I think now that that name probably almost works against him because people look at it and say, are you signing him because of the name? Because, you know, you know, you, you look at his record now and say, well, his record's not that great. So we'll see what happens there. But hopefully he stays around at least. But um, there's there's been some rumors of IndyCar and stuff like that, which would be quite interesting. I think America would quite embrace Mick Schumacher if he went to IndyCar. I think that'd be quite a nice move for him. So we'll see what happens. You mentioned the management of drivers. Obviously, when it comes to Daniel Ricciardo, there's a lot of fanfare and flair. Uh, a lot of extracurriculars that come with him. And that's why a lot of people love him, certainly as a driver. Prior to Brazil, we had a conversation about him becoming a reserve driver at Mercedes or possibly Red Bull. It's looking like that's shaping up more so towards Red Bull becoming a reality, rejoining uh, the team that was a few years ago. Do we feel like that's going to be set in stone, Lawrence, here soon? And why do you feel like Red Bull makes sense maybe over Mercedes? Yeah, I think it's an uh, announcement that's coming. Daniel's made no secret that he wants to be a reserve driver next year, uh, having not really shown much interest in going to the back of the grid. So, again, we talked about this last week. It's about finding his way back into Formula One in 2024. And 
kind of understandable now that we know a little bit of what's going on behind the scenes in Red Bull between those two drivers. And perhaps he senses a bit of mm-hmm. uh, fragility in, in Sergio Perez's position within the team and thinks that, you know, that could be a good place to be lined up. He knows roughly what Red Bull expects of uh, people associated with them. He has that history there. Of course, Red Bull uh, funded his junior career, got him into Formula One at Toro Rosso, gave him his uh, car. He won most races with uh, at Red Bull. So, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that makes sense there, and um, it's a it's an interesting position for him to be in to to have that choice between reserve driver at the top two teams. But yeah, it does look like he's favouring Red Bull. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think if you'd said four months ago when the news of you know what McLaren had done came out, if you said Ricardo's going to take a reserve role at Red Bull, you'd be like, what you know, what are you doing? Like, what's the? <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that's the best option, but. Obviously, it, it, it then became clear Alpine really never really wanted to take him back. It, you know, Williams and Haas never seemed like options he wanted. If you're looking at your quickest route back, like Lawrence said, I think Red Bull's a pretty good shout. And I think the weirdest thing is going to be just seeing him back in Red Bull kit again because that was kind of, you know, that that was back in the day when he was kind of, I think he was the more polished of those two drivers, him and him and Max. I mean, he was kind of the, you know, the guy, especially in that first half of 2018, he was kind of the guy that, that looked like the more likely or the more ready to win a championship. Obviously, I think that's flipped around quite significantly now. Um, but yeah, just seeing him back there, I think it's going to be interesting. And having him back in the team, I wonder how quickly people like Christian Horner, people like Helmut look at it and say, you know, we know what we're getting with Daniel. You know, he was one of Verstappen's most competitive teammates. I think it could be a situation where they end up, you know, forcing some change there. Um which is which is harsh on Perez because I think Perez has done as we'll talk about I'm sure when we come to discuss Brazil. But Perez has done everything that's been asked of him. He's been competitive when he needs to be. But I think that bringing Ricardo in is pretty interesting in terms of the dynamic there. And I wonder if you're Perez, what you what you would make of that. You know, you come into work on January the first on you know next season, and there's Ricardo smiling back at you in a Red Bull kit. You'd think, okay, I'm, I feel like maybe you know this this two year contract I signed, which which extension, sorry, that Perez signed at the start of the season. Uh, sorry, not after the start of the season. It was after Monaco when he won there. I think that there is a feeling on the Ricardo side that that contract isn't set in stone for two years. I think that's the only reason you'd take this reserve kind of role. So very interesting. And I think that it's going to give, unfortunately, Red Bull don't like answering repetitive questions about their drivers, but it's going to give an easy question for us every race because every time Perez does badly, every time Pierre Gasly was doing badly in 2018, every time Albon was struggling, right. the question was, who's replacing him because you guys are hemorrhaging points here. And so Red Bull might create themselves quite a tricky situation to manage, but they might not mind that, you know, it might be the pressure that they want from Checo to either stay in line or to not kick up too much of a fuss. If Max is, you know, behaving in the way that Max did last week. Um, So pretty fascinating. And I think that Ricardo going in there, the more you think about it, the more every, every option for him was high risk or, or at least had high risk of just never coming to fruition. But this one seems to have, an obvious and tangible goal at the end. You know, if you're looking at Mercedes, Russell and Hamilton, I think are there for the next three years together. So you're not going to force your way in there. Whereas the, the, the route into Red Bull, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it's wide open, but there's definitely a foot in the door <laughs> that Red Bull maybe, yeah, Red Bull have maybe put their own foot in the door. They're like, okay, we'll see, we'll see what happens here. So pretty interesting move. And um, yeah, and I think it means we'll see plenty of, I'm, I'm not sure if he'll be coming into the paddock on a horse again, but <laughs> I think it means we'll see plenty of stuff where he's still, you know, engaged in the paddock and stuff like that, which ultimately is good because he's a, he's a personality and people like him. He is. But to what I'm they gonna, said. Yeah, uh, go ahead. And I was just going to say that is ex- exactly the Red Bull way is to have, somebody in the wings ready to take 
one of the yep. driver's seats. And it's a high pressure environment. It's a completely different way to say how Mercedes treat their drivers. You know, they have often a very good reserve driver in place, but it's someone reliable, safe pair of hands. But Red Bull, they've always had, and that's kind of the point of the Alpha Tauri team is that all the drivers are on Red Bull contracts. You're not contracted to Alpha Tauri or Red Bull, you're a Red Bull contracted driver, and they will yep. swap the drivers around, as we saw with Daniel Kafia and Max Verstappen. That's how Max Verstappen got his break, won his first race with Red Bull. That's what happened. So uh if you look at next year, well, they were going to have Nick DeVries and Yuki Tsunoda. Now, DeVries is a bit of an unknown quantity. It could turn out that he is actually very competitive and a very obvious uh, driver to shift up to have an all-Dutch uh, Red Bull team. Imagine that. But um, but what if he's not? You know, he's he's still a bit unproven. And so to have Daniel there, you know, you've got someone who, if it came to it, he'd be in there. And, you know, you can use it to put pressure on, uh, on Checo if perhaps maybe this relationship does go south. Let's face it. Who are they going to side with? Well, it doesn't really matter who's wrong or right at the end of the day. They're going to side with Max because he's the future of uh, of the team. And I think Max knows that. And again, we'll get onto this. But um, but yeah, then to have Daniel there as, as this kind of, you know, this almost like a just a little weapon there to kind of get people worried, uh, get, get Checo worried. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it, it's very effective, I think. I feel like we're chomping at the bit to just get there and discuss what <laughs> yeah. took place between Max Verstappen, Checo Perez. It's like a little teaser. Team orders. A few teasers we've thrown out there. Do I do I exercise restraint and ask you about McLaren's wind tunnel situation, or do we just go straight in and we talk about Brazil? Well, let's let's talk McLaren. We can we can tease it a bit more. Like we can okay. we can talk about that because that in itself Hold is pretty interesting. Hold on for yeah. just a couple <laughs> seconds longer in case you missed it. On Wednesday, there's been reports that there's been delays in McLaren's wind tunnel construction, which obviously will present some issues for the team moving forward. Um, they likely will not have a new team wind tunnel ahead of next season's testing. If that is in fact the case, Lawrence, I mean, how massive of an issue is this for McLaren moving forward? So this wind tunnel they've been talking about for a very long time as as basically the last big jigsaw piece to fall into place to allow them to compete with Red Bull, Mercedes and Ferrari, which is one thing they've not been able to do uh, for, well, you know, nearly uh, over well about 10 years now. So um, so this is what they wanted. At the moment, they're using the Toyota wind tunnel in Cologne. It actually means that there was this um, there was a wind tunnel within the McLaren Technology Center, their factory, which um, was the state of the art thing when it was when it was first built, but has slowly kind of gone out of date, and uh, they really needed to um, start from scratch for a modern F1 car. So uh, that's what they've done, but it does seem it's been delayed a little bit. We knew it had been delayed uh, somewhat by the pandemic. There's now reports that there's there's further delays, and really all it means is that um, you know the team as it's been developed under James Key as their technical director and everything that he wants to have in place and the people he wants to have in place, it's going to take a little bit longer to get that all together. Because even when this wind tunnel goes on stream, when it first starts working, there's no guarantee that you're going to be getting brilliant results out of it immediately. These things do take a bit of fine tuning and a bit of time. And of course, then the trickle down effect for it to actually result in performance on the car takes time as well. So all of it is just kind of slightly delaying uh, all of these big promises that McLaren have had for a very long time about going back to the front of the grid. And I would love to see it. You know, McLaren at the front would be great. But um, yeah, that's one of the things that, that they've been missing. And meanwhile, you've got, you know, Mercedes, uh, you know, they've got a very advanced wind tunnel. Uh, Rebel actually make a big point about how old their wind tunnel is. They claim it goes back to, I think, uh, Cold War kind of um, era. Uh, and stuff like that. And I don't think that's entirely true. I think it is actually a pretty advanced piece of technology. It certainly works. It's certainly reliable. So, um, yeah, 
can McLaren get there? Well, it, it's going to take time. And I think as, as long as they're in that Cologne tunnel, which is good, lots of teams have used it in the past to mm -hmm. some success. But I, as far as I know, no team's ever won a championship running out of a rented wind tunnel. It's usually something you know you want to have on your own on your own property, certainly not for for many years and one F1. So um, I think it is it's a crucial part of um of getting McLaren back to the front and it just sounds like it may take a little bit longer than than they wanted yeah that, that Christian Cobble comment I feel like he said it once and then was like that's quite a good line I keep saying that because we've heard it like six times in the last six races um yeah spot on with everything Lawrence said I think one one extra point to this that's interesting is that when McLaren signed Ricardo uh so they tried to sign him in 2018 before he went to Renault and I think Ricardo felt like everything that Zach Brown was kind of telling him was, we're going to have a wind tunnel. We're going to have a technical team. We're going to have a new, sorry, a new technical team. We're going to have a new team boss. So he was like, everything you're telling me is going to happen. He then saw 2019. He said, some of these things are coming into play a little bit. Um, and the wind tunnel has been this big thing of like, this will be in play at some point. I think it's one of the reasons that that Lando extended you know, his his time there, because I think that that, you know, the promise of that, like Lawrence said, and, and, and what you could get from that is pretty interesting. So, these delays, I think, if you're a driver, I mean, Lando's got age on his side. You know, he's going to be in Formula One for a long time. But you, you wonder with him, is he going to start looking at this and thinking, like Lawrence said, like this, the wind tunnel being there doesn't mean snap of the fingers overnight. We're we're being world champions. Every every delay here pushes back when you might see a Lando Norris kind of challenging for a championship. You would assume. So that becomes interesting from the human point of view of the you know the racing point of view. How long does a driver like that? stomach these delays is this delay the only delay or is is it the first of a succession of delays if there's another one does a guy like lando turn around and say look i don't i just don't have faith that this project that you're promising me as good as it sounds mm -hmm. is where it goes so if, i'm not saying that that's that's on the cards right now but if you're mclaren you have to be worried about that because zach brown you know he's he's clearly building something he's been trying to build something for a while but the wind tunnel has been that kind of that crowning piece and at the moment he just doesn't have it so um it's pretty interesting from that perspective and i'm I'm sure that i mean i've been playing f1 manager for a little while and the wind tunnel drives me absolutely crazy <laughs> but i bet you know so like it's such an important part of racing that it's it's kind of remarkable actually when you look at mclaren the way they have operated for the last few years you know that mm -hmm. they haven't that like, like lauren said it's literally you know renting renting a wind tunnel which for one of the most famous teams in f1 is is kind of a remarkable state of affairs so maybe they need a cold war wind tunnel maybe that would be their you know their way back to the front who knows <laughs> Well, it's... before we before we keep moving forward, um, who are you uh, managing, and uh, where are you taking them? So I started out with McLaren. Question. I started out with McLaren, uh, and that went as exactly the same as this season has gone for McLaren. Lando was on it. I couldn't get Ricardo to perform. I just didn't know what was going on. So I was like, I was trying to sign either Ocon or Piastri. I signed Ocon, and then Ricardo went to Alpine and started beating me every week at Alpine. Uh, and I couldn't develop the car very quickly. So I don't know what that says about my skills on that game, but I don't think I'm very good at it. I think McLaren just, deserve, just sounds like better. the game is very, very accurate. Yeah, I think <laughs> the team definitely deserve better. And I've started a new game with Haas now, which is a lot more fun just because, you know, you're pushing that team up from the bottom. But um, yeah, my 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 team boss credentials are pretty, <laughs> they're pretty low anyway, but I think they're rock bottom as it stands. There's going to be moments when it's awesome being a team boss and there's going to be moments like we saw in Brazil where you're like, what do I do? Why am I doing this job? I've got to deal with this again. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. 
With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any 8-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature 8-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. George Russell, kudos to you. Excellent drive getting his first Grand Prix victory. He was so emotional. You knew it meant a great, great deal to him. It felt like he was due at some point just based on how consistent he's been throughout the entirety of this season. Uh, But his first victory was a bit overshadowed based on what went down late in the race for Red Bull. Max Verstappen overtakes his teammate, Sergio Perez. Max Verstappen, as everyone is aware, is already a two-time world champion. He's got it in the bag, and yet his team told him to allow Sergio to retake the position, and he said, "Uh, no, no, not so fast, not today. I've given you my reasons. I don't want to talk about this again. And I think F1 fans everywhere were pretty shocked that He wouldn't allow Sergio Perez to advance in the race when Sergio Perez, quite frankly, has given a lot to Max Verstappen through the years. He has been a great teammate, a great support system, and he's done his job. I mean, we can go through the list of different races where he's defended while he's done his job taking fastest lap from people to help. And I was shocked by it. I'm curious to hear what you guys thought when it went down and he did not allow his teammate to pass in that moment late in Brazil. Definitely shocked by it. And I was more surprised and kind of taken aback by the the Verstappen radio message, you know, to Red mm-hmm. Bull. And just what that says about that team and the way it's run and the, the position that Verstappen has within it. You're absolutely right, Katie. I mean, if you were looking right now at like the perfect teammate for a world champion to have, Perez has ticked every box that you need. You know, he's, I mean, he gave up a win in Spain that he clearly didn't want to do, but he did it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's not been super competitive all year, but I think he's he's certainly stepped up this year at points when maybe he didn't last season. But yeah, like there's no there's no issue that Verstappen can have in, in you know in that in on that front. If if this was for a win, I think that the conversation would be very different. You'd say like it is always difficult to tell a driver to give up a Formula One win. But when you're talking about sixth position for Verstappen to behave the way he did, I think it was unbelievable and i'm surprised I, I think we can dig more and more into this but the um red bull have always been really annoyed like christian horner gets really annoyed when people suggest that he's actually team boss of team verstappen you know he says that's absolutely that's absolutely ridiculous but red bull can't deny that at all now there's no you cannot stand behind and you know say that we favor both drivers equally because not only did verstappen do that within half an hour of that happening they had a debrief behind closed doors horner came out and said everything's fine max is gonna support Checo." In Abu Dhabi. And I thought, well, hang on a second. It doesn't matter if he's going to support him or not in Abu Dhabi. He's just shown the respect he doesn't have for his teammate. You know, I think that Red Bull hope that, you know, Perez will finish second and Verstappen will have a chance to redeem himself. But Verstappen showed that he does not 
have a basic level of respect for his teammate. And he doesn't have a respect for his team. Let's not forget, Verstappen's been fantastic this season. But that car has also been amazing. You know, Red Bull have given him that car. They've given him his break in Formula One. Christian Horner has been Max Verstappen's biggest advocate. And to do that to the team is so disrespectful. You know, you've basically... And it made... it made, I think it made Horner look super weak as well. I think, like, it showed... I, you don't feel like Horner has really that much grasp over Verstappen in that situation. The more you read about it, the more you feel like, well, Helmut Marko is the guy who calls the shots in terms of what happens with the Verstappens. And I think that historically it's clear that Marko has done anything he can to keep the Verstappens happy. Now, from a from a race team perspective, that makes a lot of sense. You know, Verstappen's very, very good. But there's a line for any driver. It doesn't matter how good you are. You can't let your driver do that. You cannot. And I'm surprised that they they spoke behind closed doors. It doesn't seem like Verstappen really got a big telling off. Um, and I don't think that we should overlook that point because I think the fact that Horner was so contrite about it, sorry, not contrite about it afterwards, was so um, kind of unmoved by it afterwards. He said, oh, well, you know, it, you know, it, it happened, we talked about it, etc. If that had happened at Mercedes, I think Toto Wolff would have been apoplectic with it. I think, you know, we've seen Wolff really, you know, spe- it's funny, actually, Katie, you mentioned that uh, Russell's uh, race got overshadowed by the Red Bulls because Verstappen's first win in 16 got overshadowed by the Mercedes drivers colliding in that race. And it's a bit different, a collision versus team orders. But for Mercedes back then, that was their drivers stepping over the line. They said, you've disrespected us. You've raced too hard. We've given you the freedom to race and you haven't, you know, you haven't shown each other or us the respect that we deserve. Um, so you can't, it's comparing apples and oranges a little bit, but I feel like a similar response from Red Bull would have been justified. And I feel like the fact that we didn't see that shows that they feel that if they did that, Verstappen could turn around and say, well, you know, good luck finding another driver because I might go somewhere else, you know. So um, really fascinating insight into it. And um, yeah, I think I think Verstappen had a lot of goodwill from fans this year. People looked at it and said, you know, he had nothing to do with what happened in Abu Dhabi. You know, really unfair to tarnish his title win last year with that. The budget cap again, you know, he's not the guy mm-hmm. <laughs> sorting out catering budgets or whatever. He's driven fantastically all year. And then, you know, I, I felt all year like, man, we're not talking about how great this guy has been this season, how fantastic he's been. You know, I, res- I actually kind of respected the stance he took on Netflix because not a lot of drivers kind of speak as openly about that stuff as as Max. And then in the space of 60 seconds, one radio message. And to do it to Checo as well, who I think most most F1 fans like and respect and think, you know, is a is a driver that has so much support. To do that to a driver like that, um, yeah, I think he's just undone all of that goodwill. So from a PR perspective, a bit of a nightmare. But I don't think Verstappen really, I don't think he'll really mind about that. You know, I think if he, if people dislike him, I don't think that's ever been an issue. So from that perspective, I'm not saying Verstappen's going to lose sleep over it. But um, yeah, just really know, interesting though. how it went down. I don't know, because I think the reason he pulled back from the Netflix series is he didn't like the way that he was being portrayed as somewhat of a as villain. As a bad guy. Yeah, and, and true. I even took a step back because watching it, you do get that sense, right? That he's a bit cold, um, a bit robotic, but also that's what makes him so good at what he does. And I took a step back and thought, well, maybe they are dramatizing this or the way that they edit the show together. It's not an accurate representation. Lawrence, it doesn't get more accurate than radio messages. And I know that it's heat of the moment. And sometimes you wish you could take back what you say in those exact seconds. But nobody edited that together. I mean, that is as pure as it gets in that moment. And I think as you heard Sergio Perez say after, he showed who he truly is. And now I don't know if Sergio regrets saying that, if that was heat of the moment. But I just don't think that this is something that 
um, is a good look for Red Bull whatsoever, Lawrence. No, it's not. And it's also something which they've clearly talked about internally because Max referenced that. He said, I've given you my reasons before and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's the, the the fact that this came out, it was almost like Red Bull were testing him a bit to see whether he would do it. Uh, I mean, of course, they couldn't really not tell him to swap because Checo needs it. And they've already said so many times they want Checo to finish second in the championship because Red Bull have never done one, two in the championship before. So um, it, it was always coming, but it had all been premeditated. As I, you know, Max knew exactly what he was going to say. He knew exactly that he was going to reject it. And a number of races ago, people were asking him about helping uh, Checo. And he was saying, well, you know, I'm not Father Christmas and stuff like this and kind of laughing it off a bit. But that is the reality. And I, I, I don't think he, I honestly don't think Max cares if people think bad about him or whatever. He has his version of events. And as long as, he feels those version of offense have, have been portrayed correctly. He's happy when he gets upset is when uh, what he sees out there is somehow conflicts with how he sees the world in his head. So the fact that people don't like him for something or have a problem with him, I actually don't think he cares. I think, you know, he really is just all about going racing. And I think that's part of ultimately why he didn't want to give up a position to his teammate, because he just sees it as uh, maybe a sign of weakness in some way, but, I don't think anybody else would have seen it that way, but it's 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 hard to get into Max's head and, and understand the logic of why he just wouldn't give up the sixth place. But presumably it's just because he is such an out-and-out racer that he doesn't believe in uh, in any situation kind of taking a team order to uh, to to help out someone else. So it's, it's, it's a strange one because, you know, Red Bull had this season so beautifully sewn up. You know, we were all writing, you know, Wonderful words about them in Japan. Of course, it all kind of turned a little bit with Mexico and when we got the full details of the cost cap. But again, as Nate said, Max was riding it all out. You know, he was looking great. And uh, and then he goes and does this. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't really get it. I don't really know the point he was trying to prove because that team has already always worked around him the only thing i would disagree with nate on is that i wasn't that surprised uh you know <laughs> when he when he went past perez i did wonder you know if they're going to try and swap it back uh you know maybe that's going to be an issue and and max was chasing down alonso and finished you know a couple of attempts off him and i think what max was probably hoping in his head was like if i can just get past fernando then they can't tell me to give the position back uh, i don't think I think he realised as he exited the final corner that that wasn't going to happen and therefore he should have given the uh, position to Perez. But I think that's what he had in his mind. And then, um, yeah, and then clearly there's all this stuff that goes back. Clearly it's not as harmonious as it has looked um, for so much of the time that Perez and Max have been in that team. And uh, that's a fascinating thing. What happened in Monaco? These the, A bunch of Dutch journalists who have done a really good job at reporting around Max uh, since he's been in Formula 1, uh, are convinced that Max is convinced that Checo crashed on purpose in qualifying in Monaco and therefore um, stopped Max from setting his fastest final Q3 lap, which could have been good enough for, for pole and I guess therefore a likely victory in Monaco. And so this thing is has been floating around and floating around and there's all these new conspiracy theories around it because at the time, there were lots of people on Twitter saying, wait, did Checo just crash on purpose? Because we've seen drivers uh, either do that and being found guilty of it, which is what Michael Schumacher did, or we've seen drivers do that and everyone being pretty convinced that they've done it on purpose, which is what happened with Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton. Uh, and so it does happen in Monaco. Uh, and then there was all these all these rumours about it. And everyone looked and they're like, no, you wouldn't crash there if you were going to pick a place. You certainly wouldn't 
rear end the car into a barrier because you have this danger of gearbox damage, which is an immediate five place mm. grid penalty if the gearbox has to be replaced. And so um, it all kind of got completely, um, you know, laughed off really by most of the people in 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 the media center. But then clearly in the Verstappen camp, it seems that thought was always there. And now it's come back out and it's come back to the surface. And now the whole of Twitter has gone off on it again, trying to prove through throttle traces and what have you that uh, that Checo uh, intentionally rear-ended his car um, through a blind corner in Monaco, which I just don't think you would do if 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 yeah if you were going to make that decision. So it's it's great, isn't it? In a way, because it has given this whole new dimension to uh, to Red Bull and everything that was going on there. And the team must have known about this because it sounds like they have talked about it previously. And so um, yeah, now it's a little bit out in the open, and uh, that's you know when the best stories kind of come to light, isn't it? When they get on the open, and we can kind of start to poke around it a bit and ask a few more questions. So what's funny about Sunday was, I, you know, I asked Red Bull, I said, can you just give us a bit of insight into this Monaco situation? And the team insisted that Monaco did not come up in that post-race debrief they had, but they didn't offer an explanation as to what else it could be. So I'm, I'm pretty convinced that this Monaco thing is the reason. It was, I think Red Bull are going to go fully the other way and deny that this weekend. But it gives another great insight into the Verstappens. You know, this this has lingered for five months. You know, they've been sitting on this. They haven't been able to forgive. They haven't been able to forget. And I don't even think, I, I don't buy that Perez did it because all those things Lawrence said were true. But also, if he did crash there, and, you know, according to the Dutch press, he then admitted that he had crashed intentionally in Baku. I don't, I'm not sure whether that's true. We haven't been able to confirm that ourselves. But he would have he would have had to go to Helmut Marko and Christian Horner and said, "Look, guys, not only did I risk the penalty that Lawrence mentioned, not only did I crash intentionally at Monaco, I also did it and let our at the time close championship rival Ferrari lock out the front row. Like, ignore the fact he went on and won the race. Like, Ferrari qualified first and second in that race in the you know the hardest circuit to overtake. So, for Perez to have done it is one thing. For him to have admitted it, I think, is a completely different situation. So, I find it really difficult to to get on board with that. But if People cast their minds back then. The day after that race, Jos Verstappen wrote on Max's website this blog that just tore the team apart, said Red Bull didn't do it because obviously Perez went on and won on the Sunday with a mm -hmm. great pit call. You know, it was one of his, that and Singapore really stand out as two great career drives from him this season. Sorry, uh, in his career, but two wins that he's had this season. Um, but Jos Verstappen completely tore the team apart, tore them a new one, said, you know, the, the strategy was terrible. They, they left all these points on the table against Ferrari. And again, in that situation, Red Bull didn't do anything about it. They said, "Well, it is yours. It is you know, it's Max's dad. It's not Max." And so it, it's just it's it's a fascinating dynamic there. And I think the big question now is whatever happens in Abu Dhabi, it, we'll see how it plays out. But next year, let's hope Perez is more competitive. Let's hope Mercedes and Ferrari are more competitive. If there's a situation next season where you know Perez is in front of Max, and Red Bull say, "Perez, Checker, can you let Max through?" If I was Perez, I'd turn around and tell them where to go. I'd say no. He showed me what he thought of me last year. I'm not doing that. And whether that would cost him his job or not is a different question. Maybe that ultimately in his head is say, if I do this, I probably won't stay around, which is what we talked about with Ricardo. So that's why him being there, maybe, you know, there's a different element to it. But yeah, it's just set up such a needless thing for them next season. So I'm I'm stunned it's happened. And um, yeah, I mean, it does give us a good talking point for the final race because otherwise, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes at this point in the season, you don't have anything to talk about. I'm sure for Toto Wolf. He was a bit annoyed that we spent all that time talking about Red Bull. But um, yeah, just really fascinating. Um, I, I can't think of a, a comparison in, in other sports where something like this has happened. I know there was this Ronaldo interview this week with Man United, but you know that 
no other sport compares. That's why yeah, I think that even that is like you know that's, that's in a controlled environment. This was you know in the middle of competition, a driver <laughs> or a competitor ignoring their team, you know, and giving a pretty a pretty flimsy reason for doing so, which yeah, unbelievable. And then you had on the grid another driver asking for team orders, and the team saying, "No, you need to stay put. You need to stay in place." That being Ferrari. There's so much that took place. Fernando Alonso obviously made some spicy comments about his teammate, Lewis Hamilton. I mean, we're not even talking about the fact that Lewis Hamilton and Max collided on lap seven and Lewis works himself back into a podium finish. So just of all the things that you saw take place before we get to Abu Dhabi, what was one or two other takeaways you had from Brazil? For me, it was that Verstappen-Lewis contact because that just rewound the clock um, 12 (laughs) months to something and it, it it was it was so exciting wasn't it and you knew that as soon as they went into that corner and you can see the way it was going and that is a corner way we often see collisions he just knew it was going to happen and uh, max said he knew as well max said he went into turn one he could tell by the way that lewis was driving that they were going to collide but he put his car there anyway and uh and made sure of it so it was um it was great because like lewis v max i think is still the most box office uh rivalry that f1 can deliver and to see that it is still very very raw that should they get in cars which are competitive with each other next year they will race exactly as they raced last year perhaps you know with even less respect because uh you know it really does seem every time they're on track together they have a collision um that is uh it's exciting i mean i look i, I love clean racing the russell versus verstappen uh sprint race comparison you know they raced very cleanly. It was very exciting to watch, and uh, and one got ahead of the other. But with Max and Lewis, it's just there's just no quarter given at any point um, from either side. I think for what it's worth, the penalty was about right. Five seconds is the smallest penalty they can give out in a race, and uh, I think Max was slightly more to blame for the incident. Lewis could have left a bit more space, but uh, Max, the angle that he was approaching that corner and where he would have ended up had Lewis not been there everything was just going out to the outside of that corner uh, into turn three. So I think Max had kind of, as he basically said afterwards, made the decision that the way Lewis had uh, treated him in turn one meant that he was going to be just as rough in turn two. And then they had the collision. So um, for me, that was, yeah, it's just pure F1 box office, two drivers, a bit like Senna and Prost, um, Schumacher, Hacken, and, you know, just two drivers, uh, both at the top of their game, not giving the smallest smallest amount of track to one another and uh sometimes the result is a collision and i think other drivers on the grid should look at that and say if you want to beat max if you want to really ruffle max i think that's how you got to race against him you've got to say look i know how you race i know you put your car in a situation where it makes it very difficult for the other person to make the corner elbows out senate yeah senna used to do the same thing and the drivers that were good against him were the ones that you know rose to that and said fine let's let's do this <laughs> you know and i think it was we never fully saw Charles versus max this season and they had that great kind of back and forth duel in saudi but i think the one thing that'll be be really key for Charles if ferrari are there next year is he's gonna have to race a bit more like that next season so that was a takeaway i, I had but um just generally as well i was so impressed with george russell um you know i think we've we've known how good george russell is for a while mm-hmm. you know i feel like he probably should have gone to mercedes earlier than he did but that's splitting hairs a little bit you know that weekend he was fantastic. You know, if you look at it was completely on merit as well. You know, he he dominated in the sprint. He did a fantastic race. And, you know, that that finale, you know, you got Lewis Hamilton breathing down your neck at a restart in the same car as you. You know, that 
that's not an easy situation to be in. And full credit to, to Russell. I think he said he made one mistake on those final 10 laps. Um, and that was it, you know, and Lewis was chasing him down. And for what it's worth, you know, I think Lewis, I, I think if that's another team there, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe Lewis pushes harder. I, I, I'm not sure. But the harmony that those two seem to have at the moment is such a contrast to what's happening at Red Bull as well. And it's easy to foster that when you're not fighting for a championship. So that is a side note there. But I think that's quite interesting next season because Lewis seemed genuinely pretty pleased for his teammate. You know, there's clearly a respect there. You know, Lewis clearly respects Russell's talent and thinks he's, you know, thinks he's pretty damn good. You can't say the same about Max and and Checo. So again, you know, if we're talking about 2023, um, that could be quite an interesting factor as well. But here's the question: What would you rather have, or what's better for winning championships? Is it a one-driver team? Probably a one-driver team where where you have Max Stappen and he's winning everything for you, or you have George and Lewis who. And these relationships always start very well. Do you remember mm. uh, 2014 in Bahrain when Lewis and Nico had their first real wheel-to-wheel battle and um, Lewis Hamilton beat Nico Rosberg and in part for May afterwards, they were kind of like hugging each other and slightly kind of like trying to get each That's other right, in a headlock. Yeah. But it was all fun and games. By the end of the season, it was not at all. And then two seasons later, it was pure toxic. So while I think uh, the the basis of the relationship between uh, George and Lewis is much healthier than that because the relationship between Nico and Lewis went way back to karting days and had all sorts of um, issues going on. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, it's having two drivers fighting for a championship, both as good as George Russell and Lewis Hamilton are, there's a real danger that you end up in a situation where neither of them win at the end of it, a bit like McLaren when they had Fernando and Lewis in 2007 and Kimi snatched the title. And I suppose that is, from a team management perspective, that is interesting, isn't it? Because if you're a Red Bull right now, you can ride this out a bit and say, yeah, you know, Max Max did what he did. Your key goal there is just keep Max happy. As long as you keep Max happy, it's fine. Checo's probably in the best situation his career is ever going to be in. He's not going to rock the boat that much. I always felt that was, Ferrari always did that very well when it was Schumacher and Barrichello. As, as annoyed as Barrichello might get, Ferrari could say, okay, if you're really, if you're really annoyed, if you want to leave, you know, there's the door. You know, and Barrichello probably looked at it and thought, okay, I'm driving one of the best cars that's ever been made in Formula One, probably not going to leave. So from that perspective, I think, yeah, maybe maybe there's some genius, maybe there's some method to the madness, who knows? But um, I do think that the flip side to that is if you've got two competitive drivers and it becomes obvious earlier that one of them has a better chance than the other, you can use one competitive driver to aid the other one. Now, I'm not sure how that would work if you ask Lewis to do that for Russell next year. That might change the dynamic a bit. But mm-hmm. if you're in a team position, you know, you can, I think that that becomes a weapon in itself. You know, if, if Perez, that's, you know, Bottas was always kind of last year, I felt like a weak link for Mercedes. Um, whereas, you know, the strength of Red Bull, certainly in those final races, was that Checo got himself in those positions to kind of, you know, battle a bit against against Lewis in key moments. So I do, yeah, I get you. But I think that in this day and age, every team seems to want a, two drivers that are strong rather than here's our number one guy here's our number two guy unless you're red bull when clearly <laughs> clearly they're doing the schumacher kind of the schumacher formula it's why it's one of the most compelling and entertaining sports in the entire world which leads me to the mm-hmm. last race of the season I think it's likely that we are let down because we are never going to see something quite like what we saw a season ago. So Lawrence Edmondson, if you will, sell Abu Dhabi to me. 
Why should I care? Why am I watching? What's still at stake? What are you looking for in the final race of the 2022 season? Okay, yeah, that's tricky because I have come to this race a lot of times and wondered <laughs> quite what I was doing here. Um, but if there is a title on the line, then it's good. And we don't have a title on the line, but we have, I guess, what is quite literally the next best thing, which is second place on the line between Checo and Charles Leclerc. And, of course, no one was really that excited about it. It was hard to tell if the drivers were actually that excited about finishing second in the championship. But now we've had this other element thrown in there with the um, Perez and Verstappen issue in Brazil. And then, of course, also that Ferrari didn't swap their drivers there either. Uh, that kind of makes it interesting, I think, because uh, Sainz, who's on very good form at the moment, got a podium in Brazil, uh, could quite conceivably be ahead of uh, Charles on, on Sunday. And the same with Red Bull. And, and seeing how they kind of um, work that to their advantage will be interesting. Plus, let's not forget, we've just had Mercedes win the first race this season that they've won, you know, after eight years of dominance, uh, they were absolutely nowhere at the start of the year and they've got themselves back. And if they can finish the year on two wins, I think it'll be much harder here because the track doesn't really suit their car. But if they could do that, imagine what that would say about their chances going into next year. So there's still stuff to get excited. There's always, if there's a Formula One race on, there's always stuff to get excited about. But there are a few little kind of background stories going along um, that I think will still make for an interesting weekend of racing. And let's not forget as well, last race for Mr. Sebastian Vessel, uh, last race for the foreseeable future for Ricardo, last race potentially for Mick Schumacher. Um, I keep forgetting as well that it's Nicholas Latifi's last race, so shout out to, to Latifi. At the scene of one of his most famous moments when he became a Red Bull, he got Red Bull for life, as Christian Horner said afterwards, <laughs> for what happened last season. Um, so yeah, I think the Vettel one will be, um, yeah, hopefully he gets a good, you know, just a good, strong, clean race out of that. But um, that would be bizarre, you know, seeing seeing Vettel get out of an F1 car for the last time because, you know, he's been around for so long and he's done so much. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I was wondering the same question. You know, what what is riding on this this weekend's race? I personally don't get that excited about the battle for second, but I think I, I don't know. I don't know whether there's a way F1 can ever make these things more interesting. Obviously, when you look at soccer, you have European qualifications, stuff like that. Mm. You really don't have the same thing riding on it, and as much as People try and push, oh, the column two money, the column two money. I don't think the Constructors' Championship really resonates with that many people because ultimately you look at a Formula One car and you most people assume, I feel like they're doing all right for money. Whether that's true or not, it's harder to get excited about it. So, um, yeah, it's a shame because I always loved, we talked about it last week, didn't we? But Brazil is such a great venue and it's just such mm -hmm. a shame that that doesn't finish the season because if that had been the last race, you know, that would be an amazing way to finish the season off, but it just always seems to deliver. And Abu Dhabi, not quite sure that it does. You know, last year's race was actually pretty dull until those kind of final 10 minutes. You had a great first lap when everyone forgets now that Lewis and Max had that moment at the at the chicane. Then you had Perez kind of defending for a little bit. And then there was like 40 laps of really nothing happening other than me writing an entire race report around Lewis winning the championship, which I then had to delete um, <laughs> pretty quickly, uh, you know, when the safety car came out. So um, yeah, not the best venue, but we'll see. Maybe there's something I, I feel like Mercedes winning in Abu Dhabi after last year would be a pretty great storyline. You're also both forgetting just pure pride based on your predictions, which yes. I'm going to ask. The well, I was going to keep that quiet because I think I did pretty well last week. Yeah, let's revisit. Got it written down right here. Uh, we laughed at Nate Saunders last week <laughs> as he said he was going with his heart 
he picked Lewis Hamilton, George Russell, and Daniel Ricardo to finish on the podium. That's right. Two of the three. I will yeah. take it. Decent the job Ricardo, by you. Ricardo was pretty wild, wasn't it? I mean, he didn't even make it past lap one. No, so, um, yeah. It was, a, it was a quick race for Danny Rick. Lawrence, on the other hand, safe bet going with Max Verstappen to win. We did not see that happen. Sergio Perez at two, and then you had Charles Leclerc coming in third. So I'm just going to put a big X through all <laughs> of that for now. As you see it, last predictions that you will have for the 2022 season until I get to ask you at the beginning of next season, what say you? Go on, Nate. You're on a you're on form. You go. I'm on, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna back a Mercedes win again. I feel I feel good about it. I'll say okay. Lewis again, which probably means Russell will win. Um, <laughs> I agree with Lawrence. This isn't the strongest circuit for Mercedes, but um, again, it's going it's going for what the better story would be. So Lewis winning, uh, you know, where you know he feels he was wrong last year, mm-hmm. would be fun. Um, and then I think Verstappen and then Perez. I think if those two guys are running. Like that. I mean, if Checo finishes ahead of Leclerc, obviously it won't it won't matter. But um, I don't think Verstappen's finishing behind Perez at this race, regardless of what happens. No way just, would we get a similar situation. There's no way. No. Well, I don't know. I just I feel like you know Max has Max has put his cards on the table, and you know what what are Red Bull going to do if he doesn't if he doesn't obey them? They're not going to do anything. So um, maybe I'm maybe I'm being harsh on Verstappen, but you can't see what we saw in, on Sunday. And think that he's just going to change his mind in seven days. So uh, we'll see. Lawrence. Okay. Well, on the basis that we had a great weekend of racing in Brazil because Nate went for Mercedes and I went for Max Verstappen win, <laughs> I'm going to go for a Max Verstappen win and see if it pays off again. Uh, but I do Reverse think psychology. Be, yeah, uh, something like that. But I do think the Red Bull would be very quick round here. Uh, but then I'm going to have Charles Leclerc in second okay. and Sergio Perez in third. And then nice. this interesting situation, a bit like um, uh, 2016, where Lewis was trying to back Nico Rosberg into, I think it was Sebastian Vettel back then, who was who was in third place, or Max Verstappen, I can't remember exactly who it was. Anyway, the situation where one driver's trying to back in. So so while Max still gets his win and doesn't have to give a position away to Checo, he kind of helps him a little bit by trying to back Charles Leclerc into Perez, but it doesn't quite pay off. How about that for a pretty... I mean, that's pretty... That's pretty very... Detailed. Specific, specific as well. Yeah. Very I mean, specific. I'll put that in the footnotes, okay? In the small yeah. margins. So you don't note. need to worry about it because it won't happen. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a hell of a side note. I didn't realize you could we could add such clarifications, but I like it. The world is exciting. You can do Last whatever you want. Victory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I That's as it. always appreciate you both. Thank you so much for the time. Uh I hope we have a great finish to the season. This has been so much fun hanging out with you guys each week. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave us a comment, and don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Nate, enjoy the time at home. Lawrence, enjoy the Middle East. We will break all things down of the 2022 season next week. This is Unlap. Cheers. Cheers.